Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Gemma Purdy from Monash University. Today we welcome back leading human rights lawyer and public intellectual Todong Muya Lubis, who was recently in Melbourne to deliver a lecture on the state of Indonesia's democratic project and the challenges facing Joko Widodo's government as it heads towards an election in 2019. Hello, Mulya, and thank you so much for joining us. Nice meeting you. So, Mulya, you're in Melbourne at the moment, where you've just delivered a lecture in the Asian Law Centre, and the topic of your lecture was quite provocative. You were asked to respond to the idea that Indonesian democracy is in peril. Can you give us a little bit of a summary of your response to that statement? Well, the topic was proposed by the organizer, by the host, and I agree with that topic yeah, on one condition that, well, there are concerns that are legitimate regarding the future of democracy in Indonesia, but I'm a hopeful person. I'm still an optimist, and I do believe that the grounds for democracy is there because the amended constitution provided the constitutional ground for democracy to grow. However, we are not living in a socio-political vacuum. So there are so many actors, political actors, that influence the democracy itself. So that in itself may cause ups and downs of democracy and in some cases may weaken democracy itself. You're glass half full person always. Yes. But you do describe a long list of challenges yes. for the president, Jokowi. Mm-hmm. And as you say, these challenges are related to various political actors which are mm. present within a thriving democracy. Yeah. Can we talk first about the military and, mm-hmm. and okay. the challenge that you see there for Jokowi regarding the role of the military in Indonesia at the moment? Well, the military does not have any official political role anymore in mm. Indonesian politics. Mm-hmm. But again, the military is the most organized power grouping, so to speak. So if there are within military elements that aspire to be back into politics, you know, I don't think it can be underestimated. You know, we have to take that into consideration. Now it becomes more and more seen in the public life. Why? Because I, I call them uh, political generals. Political generals who made political statements that they are not supposed to be made by the military generals. But they did that. Uh, the visit made by the political generals to number of political headquarters, that also caused concern among us because that is not the way the political general should conduct his business. So stepping over the line. Stepping over the line, yes. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the intention? Of course, from their perspective, they keep saying they are not doing practical politics. They are doing politics for the state because the concern of the military is to unite the country. But again, the line is very thin. Yeah, When the military overstepped its boundary, who could guarantee that they will not do other things? Who could guarantee that they will not mobilize political parties to regain their old power? So that's the problem with the military. So if that is the case, then they breach their covenant because the covenants made by them after the Reformasi era is to go back to the back, not to get involved in politics. So, yeah, that's the danger. That's the danger. And the political parties must be happy to receive them. 
do you have an insight into their well response? some some political parties may be happy to receive them but i do believe there are parties who are not in line with the political generals but opportunistic political actors may probably benefit from the military entrance in politics and as we know there are many mm. former military who are indeed mm. politicians now yeah and so those connections obviously are still remaining no doubt about that yeah of course you know uh, there are connections existing between those generals between those former high ranking military officers but i still believe yeah i still hope that yeah they should be bound by civilian supremacy because their role is limited to defense the country do you think that Generally speaking, the military in Indonesia is an institution that is trusted and respected by the public. If we think of all the different institutions, we know the politicians in the parliament are not particularly yeah. well regarded. Generally speaking, yeah, the military is the most organized group within mm. the country. And to say that they are the most respected, yeah, I think they have the credibility because the history itself can prove that the military has done good things for the people. But at the same time, 32 years under Suharto has not been not a good memory, you know, for 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 the people, because they overtook civilian position, they control the government, they, they run the governments, and some of them are also corrupt. They are equally corrupt as the other non-military people. So they lost also credibility in the eyes of the people. So that's why in 1998, when we started reformasi era. Yeah, we voiced our concern and we demanded them to be back to the barrack, not anymore involved in politics. Now we see some signs that some political generals still have the aspirations to go back to politics. That's our concern at the moment. And another concern, it's kind of related regarding the issue of human rights and particularly mm. activities concerning the PKI, this raising the spectre of communist mm. resurgence, etc. You made a point that you think in, that one of the groups who might be involved in the mm. fear-mongering mm -hmm. is from the military. You mentioned how in the New Order they lost their credibility. Is this a hangover from that, that the military are trying to suppress their involvement in human rights violations at that time from coming out? Well, what important is the truth? People, especially the victims and all the families and relatives, have a legitimate right to know what happens in 1965. And they want to know the truth. And I think that is the demand. Now, of course, you know, when we talk about the truth, then we should have also accountability for the people involved in those massacres in 1965. If we have truth and reconciliation commissions, like in South Africa, of course some sort of overall solution could be achieved, provided that truth is exposed, healing is undertaken, and a lesson has to be told to the people. If compensation can be provided, I'm not talking about the amount, but as a matter of principles, that would probably heal the wounds of the people. That has not been done. President Abdurrahman Wahid in the past apologized to the victims. But I think that was an apology from Abdurrahman Wahid. Personal. Yeah, personal. That's why they still demand rightly that the state should also make an apology. Mm -hmm. I myself don't really support the whole idea of 
asking the governments to apologize. I don't think that is the issue here. The issue is to get the truth yeah, told to the people. And by having the truth, then I think we can learn from the past mistakes we have. It has been 50 years already. And uh, if you are talking about prosecution, if you are talking about trial, yeah, yeah, that is not really that easy from legal, technical, civil, and criminal procedures. That would take a long, long time. That's why the experience of South Africa, the experience of uh, Rwanda are good as lesson. And rather than spending so much time finding ways and solutions to all these problems through trials, it's better to have an overall solution, you know, mm. like what they did in South Africa in, in Rwanda. Well, yeah, you opened your lecture remarking upon the attacks on the LBH mm. headquarters, the protests there by what we assume is radical Islamic groups um, and the ineffectiveness of the police initially to stop that. And we hear about the recirculation of the Gatigapulu S propaganda film from the New Order. Feels like going a little bit backwards on this issue. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I agree with you, Jemai. Uh, it is uh, kind of backward. I'm sure there are radical elements within Islamic communities who don't like communism mm. and who mis misunderstood communism. Yeah. And they may be part of the mobs, but most of them, it is my observations, they are politically mobilized by groups that want to destabilize politics. Because they know very well that Partai Communist Indonesia has been banned. They know very well that communism is a bankrupt ideology. Do you think that the president took an interest in that? Well, at the end, yes. Because I think uh, to stop the mob from attacking LBH requires interference from the top. Yeah. But that happens after all the tension and all the worry yeah, of the people inside. It could have been prevented, I believe. Okay, so what are the other challenges? You listed quite a lot for the for the president, <laughs> indeed. You outlined threats to freedom of speech in Indonesia and freedom of the press due to the ownership of mass mm. media yeah. by oligarchs. You know, how does that manifest this curbing of press mm. freedom? The strong tradition of freedom of the press in Indonesia is still in the process. Yeah, it has not been maturing mature enough. You know, mm. to be able to draw a line between running a press as a business on one hand and running press as a part of human rights, part of freedom of the press. So the mix between business interests and freedom of the press is problematic for us. Of course, you know, the business interest has also colluded with political interests because the owners of the press come from people who are affiliated with the parties. Now again, there are of course uh, oligarchs who have no affiliation with the media, but they don't really have power perhaps, you know, to uh, influence the other oligarchs to, to be more responsible. My take is we need time to have a more responsible press in Indonesia. And in the meantime, yeah, it is very tragic to see the press is being used by political conglomerates to support their political agenda. Who should we trust at the moment? Which media outlets? Well, I still believe that Tempo yeah, is a media with... Integrity. Integrity, yeah. To a certain extent, I still trust Compass and the Jakarta Post, yeah. But this is not 
an environment that can make them comfortable. Do you think that the Indonesian public is getting savvy? They mm. read with <laughs> a critical eye, uh, or not yet, when they're consuming media? Oh yes, I think Indonesian uh, readers are very critical. But now the source of information is not only media. Yeah, the source of information is you know from so many online, so many conversation within Facebook platform, yeah. yeah, Twitters and others. So people don't really read 100% printed media mm. and television anymore. People like me, I have 600,000 followers on my Twitter. Wow. Yeah. Jakarta Post has only 30,000 subscription, and then. Tempo, Korean Tempo also has yeah, around that amount. Compass is higher, yeah. But I can use my Twitter account to disseminate my idea, yeah. my criticisms. I don't need the printed media anymore. I can do it myself. I'm a citizen journalist. So with Twitter, with Facebook, you know, I do have both of them. With Instagram, I can do a lot myself. People employ that now, consciously and unconsciously. So. In my case, I know that sometimes my account has been hijacked by I don't know who. Yeah. Like hacked? Yeah, hacked, yeah. But again, you know, I don't want to close that. I can use my account to express my critical concern. Mm. And you do. And yeah, I do, yeah. You know, thank goodness for it. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a question I have asked other mm -hmm. people a little bit about the role of the public intellectual in Indonesia and you a standout as someone who is willing to put yourself out there. I guess there's some risk involved with doing this still because as you say, you can be attacked for what you say. Do you feel like that? That you make yourself vulnerable a little bit when you take this position? I was a student activist when I was a student and I said what I uh, wanted to say, you know, uh, yeah. freely, you know, without any uh, constraint. And I've never joined political parties myself, although I was asked by President Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono at the times, but I quit. So I have no political baggage mm. myself. So I'm, I'm free. I can say whatever I like. Yeah. And this day, with my age, you know, uh, I believe I'm, I'm, young, I'm still young, yeah, but <laughs> my age is not young. You know, my biological age is not young. But of course, you know, my uh, spirit is still there to, to take part in all this discourse. I do what I like to do. And I say what, what I like to say. Not like most of the politicians or intellectuals who have all this affiliation. Yeah, they do what ha they have to do. Yeah, they're employed yeah. by universities, they're, they're employed government by the university, employees. Yeah. The yeah. political parties, uh, a politician. Yeah. Yes. They do what they have to do mm. because of their affiliation with the parties. Mm. I have no such restraints myself. Fortunately, I, I have a law firm. I can support myself. I don't live from the government's That's salaries. the difference. That's my independence. So how do you see civil society in Indonesia at the, at the moment? It's under some pressure. Civil society used to be very strong, interlinked one another. The reformasi, uh, on one hand, it is the outcome of the struggle of the reformists, including the civil society. But on the other hand, it also weakened the civil society because those civil society members joined the governments join the parties and now a lot of activists yeah, be uh, yeah, looking for a more organized network to be built but that is not that easy at the moment now, secondly I believe international attention to Indonesia 
is getting smaller and smaller. In the past, I think international community put their eyes into Indonesia quite quite a lot, mm-hmm. and and in line with that, they also provided grant support to Indonesia. These days, Indonesia is not any longer considered as a, a targeted country because democracy seems to be working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, human rights seems to be improving. We're seeing that from the constitutions, yeah, from the National Commission on Human Rights, and then economy is not doing that bad. You know, we are still having a positive economic growth. So this is not the country that is on the target list of the international community, especially the funding. The donor agencies, etc. You don't think that's a positive thing? It's a positive thing, but it's also problematic because the culture of donating is not that strong yeah, in, in Indonesia. Indonesia mm-hmm. yeah. The LBH, for example, or Yap Tiam Hin Foundation, yeah. NGOs that I run, yeah. Indonesian Legal Roundtable, yeah, that's yeah. another NGOs. Now, we could not receive funds from a number of conglomerates in Indonesia because according to these NGOs, those conglomerates are tainted one way or another. Yeah, they could not receive grants, for instance, from big giant mining company or oil gas and gas company because of the human rights uh, violation committed by them. Mm-hmm. So it's not easy to get all this funding. So that that's, that's one of the problems. So you rely mm-hmm. on the small donation from the people, Individual. from uh, small uh, enterprises, but to raise funds from all these sources while the culture of donation is still weak. Yeah, That creates problem in itself. So that's why the growing of civil society is a bit slow. Yeah, well that's kind of an irony, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah, I mean it is the case that Indonesia is no longer a destination no, uh, for aid from around you know yeah, the world. Yeah. So you see civil society is being weakened by that and, and it's also I guess they're competing for the same money, yeah. same small pool. Well not only that, Jemaya. Now you have international NGOs coming to Indonesia competing with the local not national NGOs. So the cake is still the same. Yeah. You know? Now in the past the cake were divided among Indonesian civil society. Now the cake is divided not only among Indonesian civil society but also with international Who are these? NGOs. Who, why aren't they bringing their own funds? Well now you see Transparency International is in Indonesia, Amnesty International is in Indonesia, Greenpeace is in Indonesia, and there are many others. All of them are firm coming from US. So they will ask you to be member team, you know, of their firm. So they have to split up the cake. So it's really, you know, a tough time for NGOs. Yeah, so the Americans are going to prefer to give to an NGO that has already a connection with Okay, can we maybe just turn a little bit to discussion of the president? How do you think Jokowi is doing? Well, if you're talking about trains between 0 to 10, you know? <laughs> yeah, give him a rating. Uh, on economy. On economy, okay. Yeah, I think he's doing great. I should give him 8, you know, on economy, yeah? Because I believe his ambitious agenda mm. would have a long-term impact on Indonesia. Infrastructure yeah. development, exactly. So uh, that, that is, for me, no question. But on democracy, human rights, and rule of law, I don't think Jokowi has done a lot on those mm-hmm. two. 
yeah, because Jokowi would like to probably concentrate more on the economy, you know. He would let the other ministers to deal with that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's hard to give him aid, you know. You did mention in your lecture mm. that he has no real mm. power. He's uh, yeah, surrounded by members of his coalition and former military generals yeah, around him. So I guess those people have also influence over him. And he listened to them on this non-economic agenda. On economic agenda, I think he has his uh, hands-on engagement. But on non-political agenda, he probably had to make some compromise with the others. And he, he's guided because, by others. Yeah, at the end of the day, he's thinking about his own electability. Can we think about the proposition that if he is re-elected mm. and gets his second term and doesn't have electability hanging over his head, do you think that it's within him as a leader that he has a desire to strengthen democracy and act on human rights concerns after 2019? Mm, he will have more leeway, yeah, mm. I suppose, because he doesn't have to thinks about the next election, you know, because he's not, you know, he's not entitled to run for the third times. So that's one thing. But he's a member of political parties, and I believe he has to also take that into consideration. That would constrain him a bit, and the interest of the coalition would also interest him a bit. So somehow he has to compromise. But again, he will have more leeway, yeah, more space to exercise his agenda economic agenda, political agenda, human rights agenda. Yeah. So I hope he will do it. Yeah. And as you also you pointed out, there doesn't appear to be an alternative mm. candidate or an alternative to at this stage. At least from what I've seen in the media, in the social media, there are very few people who have all these aspirations to run yeah, mm. and eligible. Yeah. And, and I the don't, money. And the money. <laughs> and I don't think, you know, who have the luxury, you know, to choose at the moment. Probably from all those, you know, uh, he's still the one who can save the nation. And still popular and... Still popular, yes. And, you know, really very mm. consultative in, yeah. in many ways and very open. So we shall see. Well, thank you so much, Mulia, for joining thank you. us. Hopefully thank we've you. ended on a hopeful note. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, see you thank again. Thank you so much. See you. That was Dr. Todong Mulia Lubis, one of Indonesia's leading human rights lawyers, and most influential legal thinkers. He has been a senior adjunct member of the Faculty of Law at the University of Indonesia since 1990, where he was first appointed in 1975. From 1980 to 1983, he was director of the Legal Aid Foundation, or LBH, where he worked for many years. Lubis is also founding and senior partner of a prominent law firm in Jakarta, and has been lead counsel in a number of major human rights cases. These include acting for the Bali Nine, and also for the prosecution in the International People's Tribunal on 1965. Talking Indonesia will return on the 9th of November. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.